0: I think a week before Christmas, I wake up and my phone is kind of blowing up with tweets and people saying congratulations to me and people I never knew, like Alex Bloomberg from Startup. And, like, why is Alex Bloomberg tweeting at me? I don't know, Alex. (laughs) Like, he's a big shot. I don't know, Alex. I'm a nobody. We realized we won Best of iTunes. I think by February, we were doing like 40,000 downloads an episode and I reached out to Apple and I said, Hey guys, you know, this is awesome that I'm winning these awards, but I would love to know like how and why. It was very simple. They were just like, uh, you contributed to the genre in a different and new way.
1: This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today I'll be speaking to Omar Zenho, CEO of Webinar Ninja and founder of the award-winning $100 MBA podcast. What you heard just now was Omar excitedly describing his successful experience with the $100 MBA four months after its launch in 2014. The driving force behind the success of Omar's projects is his lifelong passion for teaching. And that passion for teaching piloted his philosophy that education is a unique experience for every student. No two entrepreneurial journeys are the same, and each person requires personalized guidance based on their values and objectives. Omar's journey to understand people and the world at large stems from his upbringing with an Egyptian-American household in Long Island, New York.
0: So my parents immigrated from Egypt. Having that gave me some sort of balance it gave me some sort of understanding that you know outside the house there's one way of life there's the american lifestyle which i grew up in that's that's i'm an american you know that's how i identify but inside the house i also had an appreciation for egyptian culture arabic you know my father you deduct 25 cents from our allowance we every spoke english on the weekends I remember um, Hassan Minhaj, who's a comedian and had, has a show called Patriot Act, and he says that immigrants, immigrants love secrets. secrets, and it's true.
1: Right? Like, they love them. They love bottling them up deep down inside of themselves and then just unleashing them on you 30 years later when it's no longer relevant. <laughs> so you'd be sitting there like, what? Mom's a ninja? Dad's a communist? Why are you telling me this
0: right now? You don't really understand the full picture going up. They, they kind of keep it from the kids because they just, like, whatever hardships they go through, they just kind of, Try to make it feel like everything's okay. But it was interesting because my dad, he left uh, being an architect, an engineer, at the time, you know, my dad's company got bought out and uh, they got laid off, and it was very hard for him to find his type of job or skill set. And in the meantime, a friend of his is like, well, just to make ends meet, why don't you uh, try this? You know, like, come and join me and work at the dealership. And I kind of said, okay, well, I mean, while I'm looking for a job and became a salesman, became a car, a car salesman. And and uh, he just kind of fell in love with it and was, found out that he was good at it. From an early age, I remember just feeling different. I always felt different. Um, just because, you know... The way I looked, um, the way, you know, having a second language, the way my parents looked, uh, my name, everything was just different from the people that I went to school with, my neighbors, my friends. By the time I was like 11 or 12, you just stop caring what people think because you just get used to being different. You just get used to being not the same as everybody else. So you just realize you're just not going to always be accepted. I I distinctly remember, you know, my, my mom coming to like you know, parent-teacher conference meetings at school and things like that, and uh, she's Egyptian, very educated woman, you know, her English is fantastic, but she speaks with an accent. I I wasn't, like, ashamed, or I wasn't feeling like, oh, this is weird, because I really saw my mom as an inspiration growing up. You know, my parents sacrificed a lot to come to America, um, they worked very hard. My mom had to get her degree all over again because they didn't recognize her degree in Egypt. Um, they had to learn a new language. They had to earn money and try to survive. They, ha- you know, roomed up with, you know, relatives in the beginning of the first few years. Um, it was really, really tough. So when you grow up in that environment where they sacrifice so much, th- their expectations of you, it- it's it's just a crazy thing where you grow up and you realize, okay, I just can't Take that for granted. I can't let them down. I can't disappoint them.
1: In embracing his multicultural identity,
0: Omar acquired an
1: expansive worldview that helped him appreciate the diligence and discipline his parents exemplified. Whether he was playing gin rummy or making an effort to speak only Arabic on weekends, Omar knew that these parental rules boiled down to one fact: that he needed to earn his stripes. If he lost at gin or was fined 25 cents for an English word, he could blame no one but himself. To get a little bit of philosophy mixed in here, German philosopher Immanuel Kant once said that an action only carries moral worth if it stems from a motive of duty. The immediate prizes certainly couldn't have hurt Omar's motivation, but I believe that a duty to preserve and advance his household's culture was the ultimate driver.
0: Being a child of a parent that's in sales, like my dad was a salesman, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs. Sometimes we had money, sometimes we didn't. One one summer vacation, we're going to Disney World. The next one, it's in the backyard. That instability was something I didn't really enjoy I, I, as, in a, as, like, as the person who felt the effects. Um, and I wanted something that was stable. I wanted something that everybody kind of would need and I thought into getting into medicine actually it wasn't for me I just didn't feel like that's something I wanted to do but then I decided to go into teaching I'm a very observant person (laughs) like in a way I observe what I do as well so I observe like this is the best way to communicate this is the best way to kind of talk about this teach this explain this I also try to put myself in somebody else's shoes so especially as a as somebody I'm talking to or explaining or teaching something I'm like okay this person's an absolute beginner they've never like try to remember when you were like that what would you want to hear how would you want this explained um, and that's kind of where I come from I think the thing I enjoyed the most at it is that I was good at it I just enjoyed winning like I just enjoyed being good at something and being exceptional and something being easy for me at that moment I realized okay like There's something here that I'm good at.
1: What kind of teaching were you trying to do? I
0: always wanted to kind of have an opportunity to travel. And I thought, I know that English as a second language is a great opportunity for you to travel. And I I knew that that was a way for me to kind of have an opportunity to see the world. I actually went to Egypt first. Uh, to see if I can uh, get a job in Egypt. I thought, oh, maybe I'll live in Egypt for a couple of years and see how that is and use it as a hub to travel. The problem was is that it was, all the jobs were very low-paying. But uh, I had a distant uncle, my mom's cousin's husband, who lived in Dubai. And he mentioned in passing to me, as he was in Egypt for a break, you should come down to Dubai. see, Check it out. I mean, it's a thriving country and they have lots of kind of like uh, money to invest in education, you might want to check it out. So I did.
1: Although his time in Egypt didn't quite live up to his expectations, it reaffirmed Omar's conviction that he had found his calling in teaching. And while it may not have been obvious at the time, Omar's entrepreneurial spirit had already manifested itself. To be a great teacher, he had to understand what people needed and how best to cater to that need. Moreover, the exploratory attitude that motivated him to teach English as a second language hinted at a strong inclination towards adventure and service. Mix that with a healthy dose of ambition, and Omar was set up for the perfect opportunity to teach in the city of gold.
0: My first memory of Dubai was I walked out of the airport in August. It was like 55 degrees Celsius, so it's like 125 or something like that. And I turned right back into the airport after that. I was just like, just to get some relief and get into the AC again. And I was like, man, that's hot. I feel like I just walked into an oven. I start applying for jobs there. I go and check out like what's available for English teaching. And there's a job at the technical school in Sharjah for an English teacher position. And I apply and I have an appointment for an interview. I go to the office and I meet Bill we just kick it off from the moment go. And I'm like, what, what a small world. Like, you know, I'm trying to find a job. I meet a fellow New Yorker and we just relate from different things in New York, the Yankees and black and white cookies and things like that. And like, it's like 40 minutes into the interview and we haven't talked about the position at all. We're just like having a good time. And then there's like a moment of silence in the conversation. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, this is a chance for me to promote myself. And I just said, well, you know, I would love to uh, you know, have an opportunity to take this job. And then he just stops me like mid-sentence. Was like, don't worry about it. You got the job. I'm very thankful for Bill for giving me a chance because that was a great series of next few years where I really built a lot of my confidence that I have today because I was really good at my job. When you're hitting your stride and you, for the first time in your life, you feel like, wow, I'm really killing it right now. It's a great feeling because it's not something you're used to. And it's almost like you don't really believe it, but there's so much evidence around you that it's like, wow, I I guess I am good at this. I never said no to anything. Oh, work on Saturday? I'm coming. You need help building the curriculum? I can help you with that. I could do that. I just said yes to everything. No one does that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't, I, and so people are like, wow, this person's actually cares and tries and works hard. And that's why I think I was successful and moved up in my career very quickly. I was applying actually for a job to be the head of department of grade 10, where basically you manage the teachers in the department, uh, you evaluate them. And I didn't get it. And I was like, A little bit bummed because I felt like I can do this job, but I was 25, still young, I was very ambitious. But the person who got it, Gus, he recognized something in me, and he told the principal, hey, I love the the fact that I got this position, but I'd love to have Omar as my assistant, to be an assistant lead teacher. From there, I learned a lot, and I I taught 20 hours, which was a ton of hours of teaching. And um, it was just a lot of fun. And then a year later, he resigned. And he recommended me for the position. And I was about to manage people twice my age. And I had to learn how to be able to manage people differently. At 25,
1: most of us are just starting to find our footing on the career ladder. But Omar was already several rungs ahead. The diligence and discipline prevalent throughout Omar's cross-cultural upbringing taught him that in order to advance, he had to capitalize on all possible opportunities. And the rungs that elevated his way up were all marked by one golden word. Yes. But Omar soon realized that the higher he climbed, the more he said yes, the more daunting his responsibilities became. But he took these responsibilities in stride. Armed with a knack for empathy, Omar proved to be an excellent communicator. Maybe he did inherit a sales instinct from his dad after all, but I think what really helped to improve these instincts was his conscious effort. And these efforts would be applied to his next stop, the internet.
0: I was just very curious about the internet. I was just very curious about like this world. But one of the first turning points was a book I read called Anyone Can Do It by Sara and Bobby Hashemi. And it was just fascinating to me, like how somebody builds something from scratch. Who are these amazing people that have an idea in their head and they just make it manifest in the world. Like it's like magic. I think what kind of put the nail in the coffin for me where it's like, I want to try something online was my uncle, Ash, would visit me in Dubai from Germany. He gave me a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. It was the right book at the right time. That book really allowed me to realize, okay, if I was going to build independent financial future, I can't do it with just a job alone. I need to do something else, either invest or have something on the side.
1: Was that clarity hard to come to terms with?
0: Yes. But at the same time, I wasn't sure I could do it yet. I knew that this is what I had to do, but I didn't have any wins. I didn't have any business wins. I didn't know yet I would be able to achieve financial independence through business. I just thought I might try it. And if I fail, I always have teaching. And that's when I kind of started dabbling on the internet. I had my first eBay store. I learned about arbitrage through uh, Robert Kiyosaki, which is basically instead of uh, owning a product or creating a product, you sell a product to somebody that wants it, you secure it. So basically, let's say my first thing was I was arbitraging rare sneakers. Somebody would be looking for like a certain model of Air Jordans and they're willing to pay 200 bucks. And I would try to find a seller that had it in the person's size And I'd basically sell that product to them before I bought it. And and then I'd make the difference.
1: The first time you did it, where were the feelings associated with that?
0: I was surprised how easy it was. I was like, I just made $80 with a few emails without a paycheck, without like working somewhere, without putting in hours. And that moment I realized people have needs, people have wants. And if you can provide that to them, they're willing to pay for it.
1: There's no denying that the same adventurous attitude, which fueled Omar's desire to travel, also sparked his predilection towards entrepreneurship. Omar's journey down the entrepreneurial path was initially exploratory, but there's a unique and completely different level of excitement when you can sail off into the distance without any kind of map. Most of the fun lies in the constant need to adapt, and Omar relished those moments of learning. With his eBay arbitraging business, Omar found a solid starting point from which he could fulfill his own ambitions while simultaneously satisfying others' demands. But this entrepreneurial route was limited. It only allowed him to sell others' products. So it's no surprise that Omar sought a more customizable route.
0: My first kind of big product that I sold while I, w- I was still in teaching, I was still in education doing my thing. I had a clothing line. I had my own clothing line called Zone Designs and I would custom tailor clothing for men in Dubai and I would sell it online to people in the US, in Western countries, Australia, UK at a premium. <laughs> I used to get my shirts made in Dubai, and I just one-offs, like three or four of them. I remember wearing a couple when I would go back home to the States to visit, and a lot of my friends and family were like, wow, that's a really nice shirt, where'd you get that? Like, where can I buy that? And I was like, no, I just got that made they're like, well, can you make me one? Can you send it back to me? Here's my address. And like a couple of my friends would say that I am like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. And I, I would do that for no profit. I would, it wasn't a business. It was just kind of just helping out friends. I would just, you know, send it to uh, my friend and my friend would be like, how much do I owe you? And I would just tell him, he would PayPal it to me. And that's it. And that's how it was for maybe a year or two. And then I would get like 20, 30 people, you know, family members, friends, friends of friends. And then at that point, I was like, okay, I don't have all this time to just take all these little orders. So I created basically an order form and I said, maybe I should charge at least just like a a fee for doing all this stuff for the time I'm taking. And again, I realized people are willing to pay.
1: It seems like the first time you're like, okay, I'm like actually making Business out of something? Like, was there a
0: defining factor? Demand. It grew and the demand grew very fast. I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with all the people I wanted to buy. And to me, that's a win. That's a business worth pursuing. Let me capitalize on this opportunity because I don't know how long it's going to last. At this point, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it a business. I'm going to make it where it's official, I have a business, and I'm going to incorporate and all that kind of stuff.
1: What were you thinking of yourself? Were you like, oh, I'm like an entrepreneur?
0: I still didn't identify myself as an entrepreneur. I just felt like this was an experiment. I was trying things out. I was making some money on the side, like a hustle. I basically spent all my evenings, all my weekends, all my holidays working on that business. I think a big reason why I didn't identify as an entrepreneur is that I didn't have any entrepreneurial friends. Like, I didn't have any other business friends. So I just felt like it's really hard to identify if you don't have anybody else that is going through the same thing as you, and you can kind of be part of that community.
1: And so what were you aiming for? Why were you putting in all this work?
0: Honestly, I just wanted to see if I can make this profitable, proof to myself I can do this business thing. And also, I just felt the need to fulfill the needs of the customers. Like, I don't want to disappoint them. Class
1: was in session for this hands-on experience in entrepreneurship, and Omar was a most diligent pupil. He took a small favor and grew that favor into a global business, learning far more than just how to make a healthy profit. Omar continuously strove to improve, partly because he didn't want to disappoint his customers, but he also couldn't bear to disappoint himself. He would soon learn that there is more to business than what one can read in a book. And although his custom clothing line was a breakthrough by most people's standards, Omar still faced the challenge of having to figure out what entrepreneurship meant to him. Without a clear idea, the glamour surrounding the pursuit would soon fade, leaving only frustration and wariness in its wake.
0: After about three years, I really got tired of it because I just wasn't motivated to come out with new styles. I just wasn't feeling the business. I didn't I didn't love it. I didn't enjoy it. I probably would say I didn't even like it. and uh, I made a lot of mistakes in the process. but at the end, I decided not to do it anymore. Just close the doors.
1: When did you close down everything?
0: Late 2011? tough decision to make. I had, you know, thousands of customers that were ordering and things like that. I sold the remaining stock in trade shows. And I was surprised how little it mattered to other people. Customers weren't that upset. No one was like, hey, I love these things. And like, come on, where, where can I get more? And no one was disappointed in my family or friends. Their life continued. And I think we, in our head, we think this is such a big deal, and uh, people are going to be upset with me, and this is going to be horrible. You're you're a supporting cast member in the story of their life. Like, they don't really care. And you think they care more than they do. And I'm not saying this in a pessimistic way. I'm saying this in a way that, to encourage you to take a risk and do things that are good for you in life, rather than just try to please everybody.
1: What did you think with everyone moving on? You're like, I guess I made the right decision, or were you hurt?
0: was so relieved the thing I remember the most at that moment was if that's the reaction then I might as well just build something that I want rather than what everybody else wants because if it doesn't matter so much to everybody then what's the point of sacrificing
1: yes Omar compares our lives to that of characters in a play claiming that we should do what we want in life instead of trying to please others and while developing your passion is essential Fulfilling your duties to your community is just as important. And I think actually that is what leads to more fulfillment because life isn't about being individualistic. It's about creatively playing on your strengths and foundations to better society as a whole. And so with a failed business, Omar went back to what he knows best. He went back to teaching.
0: So 2012, uh, I'm, I'm the acting chair. Basically, I was doing the job of the chair for about a year and a half. The chair of the department moved to a different campus. And I was the person below the chair, so then I became the acting chair. So I basically did the person's job for a year and a half. And I was rocking it. I was doing great, but I was working my butt off. I was like, I I, I distinctly remember leaving the house. It was dark. Come home, dark. And it was very, very challenging because I was, you know, doing a lot. Because remember, like, I'm basically doing two positions in one. I'm not only doing the chair job, but no one didn't hire somebody in my position that I was doing. I was like, why am I not getting this job officially? Because I was still getting my old salary. Like officially on my contract, it was my old job. So then I, I I went to my uh, supervisor, the dean, and I say to her, hey, you know, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. You know, I've been doing this for about a year and a half and uh, working really hard, and I think we've done a lot of great things. She's agreed. Yep, you're doing great. Fantastic. You know, love having you on the team. So I was like, so what's up? Like, why why haven't I gotten this job officially? Like, why why haven't I got this promotion? It's been a year and a half. I saw she paused for a moment, and I saw for a moment she, she like, maybe considered just encouraging me and saying, oh, don't worry about it kind of thing. But then she kind of just folded into herself and just kind of said, I just got to level with you. I know that the director of the university wants to make an outside hire, wants a PhD and wants somebody an outside hire for this position. And at that moment, I was so crushed. But at the same time, I felt so liberated.
1: We'll be right back after this break. So Adrian's been having a little problem with his car recently.
0: Yeah, so, like, Sam, the stereo of my car just keeps playing our amazing Jim Quick episode over and over and over again on repeat. I enjoy it, but I just want to listen to our newest founder, Wisdom.
1: We realized we had to get this fixed immediately, so we called up some mechanics and asked, hey, can you fix this? Hey, my uh, my car has been bugging out on me lately. Uh, do you guys fix stereos? Stereo, no, we don't
0: fix
1: stereo. Oh, uh, it keeps, like, playing this, like... Entrepreneurial podcast over and over again. They give like this intimate deep look into founders' triumphs and failures, and like it has like music and soundscapes. Yeah,
0: but I don't know nothing about stereos.
1: We don't want to Oh, you're not involved in stereos. Well, honestly, like I actually kind of like hearing it again and again. Maybe I don't need to get it fixed. <laughs> if you want to check out a cool podcast, I mean, the one that's been playing over and over in my car uh, is pretty good. It's called Finding Founders. You should check it out. <laughs>
0: I think he's gonna listen to it.
1: I guess we'll see. (laughs) So don't forget to get your oil checked and make sure you listen to Finding Founders, share it with a friend and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast.
0: So I felt crushed because I was like, I'm busting my ass here every day trying to do everything. I've I've contributed so much to this university. At the end of the day, I have nothing to show for it. In that meeting, I remember distinctly, I was like, I'm done. And I always say that in that moment, my frustration outgrew my fear. My fear of leaving my job. But I was just like, anything's better than this. And I just felt like uh, powerless. And that's the worst feeling in the world as a adult, as somebody who like, feels like you should have control of your own you know, destiny, your own life and your own achievements and have autonomy in your life. And I just, at that moment, I was just like sorry, I'm out. And I just decided to to leave. I put my resignation a week later.
1: Omar felt powerless, but like a hero in the second act, his arc wasn't complete. This was the moment where he had to choose to fight back or surrender. And as a child from an immigrant household, Omar was raised to be resilient, to learn to make a life from scratch. The phrase hard work pays off, is one that almost every parent tells their kid. And heck, it's one that my parents told me. But I think it's more impactful in Omar's case because he saw his parents live by these words of wisdom. He saw them start with nothing and grow from there. And as a dutiful son, Omar followed their advice, but duty was initially without reward. In fact, he felt like a pawn in this superficial construction of the American dream. He wondered if this dream existed at all. So he had to take matters into his own hands and define his version of the American dream. What were your first steps to figure out what you wanted to do next?
0: I knew in the moment that I'm going to need some time to figure out what kind of entrepreneur I wanted to be. It is going to take more than six months. So the thing I kind of leaned back on was like, a lot of people have asked me, just friends and family, like, how do you start a business? How do you do something online? How do you build a website? All that kind of stuff. So I said, the easiest thing I can do right now, just in this transition, in this phase, is to start like a business consulting firm. I can help them start their first website. I can build it for them. I can give them business advice, show them how to build like a marketing funnel. So that was kind of the first thought I had, but I had an immense amount of insecurity about business at the time because a part of me felt like, who am I to give people advice how to start a business? I had a couple businesses that, you know, side hustles, I had the clothing line that was a real business, but in my eyes it was a failure because I I didn't end up doing much with it because I didn't like the business itself. And that's when I decided, hey, maybe I should get an MBA and apply to Wharton Business School.
1: What was Wharton Business School like?
0: It was interesting. I was 10 years older than everybody else. And the things I would learn, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I I did that. I only did a semester. And in that semester, the biggest thing I got from it was, you know more than you think. And I also learned that business schools don't have a monopoly on education. The information is out there. You could learn all the stuff they teach in business school outside of business school. That's not really why you go to business school. I had a little chat with my marketing professor. He pulled me aside, and we were doing assignments. And he was just like, "What are you? What are you doing here? Like, why are you getting an MBA?" I was like, "Oh, I'm getting an MBA so I could be a great entrepreneur." And he was like, oh, "That's not why you get an MBA." Like, shook his head in like confusion and disappointment. And I was like, uh, "Okay." And he was just like, "Yeah. I mean, you get an MBA so you can get a great job at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. Like, you can gr- create a great business without getting an MBA." And what I learned the most in that semester was. A lot of us, we just need some sort of permission slip. Something that says, you are good enough. You can do this. And a lot of people just get an MBA for that. There's lessons you're gonna learn as you build your business that you just cannot learn in theory. You just cannot, you just cannot. Why? Because they're gonna be specific to you and who you are as a person. The challenges I have as an entrepreneur are gonna be different than you because I'm different. My tendencies, my strengths, my weaknesses, my fears are different. Uh, It's okay to fail, but fail fast. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Just don't make those mistakes twice. Make new mistakes.
1: Omar was tired of fearing failure. He had to learn to be okay with experimenting and sometimes having those experiments not work out. Having experimented and failed with his clothing line, Omar felt that he needed to learn some theory. That lack of confidence pushed him to go back to school, to get a degree that, let's face it, kind of was just a resume pattern. But soon, Homer realized a diploma doesn't make an entrepreneur. In fact, institutional education was but one of many paths towards actionable knowledge.
0: And then I also had this thing in the back of my mind, how many people were in my position as well? You know, a lot of people... They start a career in their life, they dedicate their life to it, and then around 30 or 35, they realize they want to change. And maybe they want to start their own thing, start their business. They don't necessarily have the time nor the money to go back to business school and learn the fundamentals of business. I was like, there's got to be other people like this that was in my, my position. What do they need to know? And I wanted to create something that said, you don't need this, you can learn these fundamentals and get started and share my story to say, say that this is not like fiction. Like you can do this. Yeah. And that's kind of where it got started. And it was called the $100 MBA because the average MBA at a prestigious college or university is hundred thousand dollars. I just thought, why do people have to go into debt? You can learn so much more if you took that hundred grand and started a business, and even if you blew all that money you'd probably come out and be able to create something amazing the next time around.
1: You knew you could provide this information. What were the first steps in getting it to people that needed that information or wanted it?
0: So when I made the transition to full-time entrepreneurship, uh, I moved to New York City. Left Dubai, went to New York City. I had a dream all my life to live in the city. I always wanted to live in New York City, in Manhattan, but what I loved about New York the most is it gave me what I was craving was a community where I can go to other people chasing their dream. You don't go to New York to live a reasonable lifestyle and count your pennies. <laughs> you go. Everybody who's in New York is chasing their dream. That's why they're there. And it's a great place to be because I always say in New York, everybody's weird, therefore nobody's weird. Hmm. And it's great there because it gave me this chance to be a part of a community of other entrepreneurs. There's so many startup hubs there. There's so many co-working spaces. There's meetups galore. I was part of a startup basketball meetup. On Saturday, it was just a bunch of people playing basketball that have startups, have businesses. And it was just great to network and talk to other people. And I was just like in heaven because it was just like, I got to grow my network and really build friends, really. I hate the word, you know, saying build your network, but really I made friends in business. And Uh, That really helped me because I got to learn what challenges people were having, what are the common challenges, and I started to write a curriculum, basically. One of the things I'm really happy I did that a lot of entrepreneurs don't do is that I didn't neglect my past. I realized, you know, I have 13 years of education experience. Let me use that in my advantage. Let me see if I can take that and roll that and parlay that into something into business. So I basically created a very simple curriculum of 10 modules of what Every entrepreneur needs to know before they start their first business. And I basically broke down those modules into lessons. And then from those lessons, I had outcomes, what what we're trying to achieve in each one. Basically a lesson plan, just like I was teaching a a subject in, in school. I remember sitting in the park. It was me and Nicole.
1: Just a quick background on Nicole. She's Omar's wife, but she would soon be much more than that.
0: And We sat down on the grass and I, I asked her, hey, listen, I have an idea. You know, I want to start something that's called the $100 MBA. Do you want to partner up on this? This is the first time I ever built a business with somebody else, but I felt so good about it. I felt like this is just right. I remember before we launched the $100 MBA program, we shot 130 videos in about two months shot, edited, everything, which was really, a sh- we didn't take a day off for 60 days, and we just we just did it all out of our New York apartment it's incredible, people who watch these videos are like wow, this is a great you know, studio, and nope it was in my one bedroom apartment in New York, and we just changed the backdrop we uh, changed my clothes, changed my attire, do a lot of like b-roll and cut shots, and I would shoot some videos outside in New York, and New York is a great backdrop, so like I had that working for me, and it was one of the best decisions I made in my life One of the best decisions I made in my life because in that moment, I realized if you want to build something great, you just can't do it alone. It's very hard to do it alone. Even if you look deeply of any any brand, any business, any podcast, any program, there's somebody there that you don't know about that's not the face of the business that makes it happen.
1: Omar realized that he didn't want to build something on his own, and that realization carries with it a lot of truth. Every great idea needs a team behind it, But the team doesn't necessarily have to be big. I mean, Omar founded a company with just him and his wife. Beyond the immediate team, community is an invaluable resource in building something new. Previously, Omar had worked as a teacher, and that community was tough to navigate through. But in New York City, the Big Apple, Omar found a supportive community of like-minded individuals that encouraged him to pursue his dreams. And initially, the pursuit of these dreams received inconsistent results.
0: We launched uh, the $100 MBA um, December of 2013. And it was funny because we had like 103 uh, new members on launch day. My goal was 100. I wanted 100 MBA, 100 people, and see how it goes it was great, and people loved it, and we had a great community, and we did you know, Q&A and office hours. and But after the launch, things started to die down. And I knew I needed a way to bring in people. And I remember watching a talk from Seth Godin, who said, one of the easiest ways to be successful in business is to be famous. And he said it kind of tongue-in-cheek and... Half joking, but he's right. Like you have to have an audience. You have to have somebody to talk to. You have somebody to be a part of your community in order for you to eventually sell to them. It's very hard to do that if no one knows, doesn't know anything about you. Like I always say, one of the biggest pains businesses have is being ignored. So I wanted to start something that would allow me to build that audience. And January 2014, Nicole and I went to New Media Expo. This was a an event in in Las Vegas, and this was like the first conference I went to, a business conference as an entrepreneur. Uh, as long as and at that time, the the big thing was podcasting. You're like, podcasting is going to come up and start to, start to build momentum. Um, and part of the Hunter MBA, we would do video interviews with entrepreneurs. And in that conference, in the Q&A section of that that talk, somebody said to us, Hey, Omar, what's your question? I had a question. I was like, uh, you know, how do I get started with this podcasting thing? Like, what do I do? Like, and they knew that I did videos already. It's like, so why don't you just rip the audio from the video and uh, make it a podcast? So Nicole and I started a podcast uh, shortly after, like maybe a month after, called People Who Know Their Shit. Unfortunately, the podcast was shit. And it was an interview podcast and we had 46 episodes and we really tried hard. Um, but on a great day, like our best episode got like 500 downloads, which is fine. But I was really, that's not really going to move the needle. That's not going to really get you the audience you need to push your business to the next level. And it was a, it was a gut check because it was like we really, in our opinion, the podcast failed. Like it didn't do well at all. At the time, Nicole was still doing some video gigs And we did a cross-country trip from California to New York, and uh, we had this long talk on this road trip because you have all this time, the open road, you've got nothing but time to talk. We're like, "Why is this not working? Why is this podcast not working? What's going on?" And a couple things happened. Number one, we did something a lot of people, I feel, don't do enough: is just be brutally honest with yourself. We looked at the top business podcasts in iTunes. And we asked some brutal questions. Like, how am I going to compete with Jordan Harbinger, who's been podcasting before the iPhone for 10 years? How am I going to compete? Get real, Omar. How are you going to answer that question? And worst of all, like half our episodes were ripped from video, which is like the, like, that's the worst thing you could do for a podcast. You're producing something that is not meant for audio. You're, that was meant for video. <laughs> there's, there's, there's body language, there's a whole bunch of things. You're not producing a podcast. You're half-assing it. So the other thing we realized was, what are we good at? And I was like, Nicole also comes from an education background. I am from an education background. I've taught for 13 years. This is my super strength. This is my super, you know superpower. I can do this. I should be teaching. Why am I interviewing? And I thought, no one's actually teaching a lesson, short lesson that they can implement right away and get better business every single day. And I felt like I can I can do this because I'm very good at condensing a lot of information into very small digestible chunks. I've been told that I can explain things very easily. I know that I could teach better than everybody on that those top podcasters. And I thought I think this is something that we can do. We took a huge risk at that point. We said we're going to build this podcast. Um, we're going to make it the same name as the 100 NBA called the 100 NBA Show. The $100 NBA show, <laughs> Business Strategies. On we really worked plan. hard on it. Every we, we I remember recording episode, episode one like 10 host, times before we actually got to the final edit. And uh, we, re- we released the $100 NBA show on August 14th, 2014, August 11th, 2014. And immediately it was successful. Uh, we were number one in New Noteworthy for eight weeks straight. And I was like, wow. But by the end of the eight weeks of New Noteworthy, we were getting 10,000 downloads an episode. And I was like, okay, this is working. People like this. But I knew that in iTunes, it would take a cliff after new Noteworthy and you would not get exposure anymore. And I wanted to see if we would still get those download numbers. And we would, and the numbers would keep going up. And I just was really, I was still not ready, not ready to celebrate because I was like, okay, we still have a great show, but we still got to keep going on. Do it. it was a daily show uh, and it's still a daily show. I wanted to make sure that we had some lead time, and we and Nicole was editing the episodes. It was just me and Nicole building this podcast. That's it, no team, no EA, nothing. You know, we were just trying to bootstrap this thing until we see where it goes.
1: Although Omar's first attempt at podcasting was a flop, his second was a success. What changed? Omar wasn't just aimlessly making a podcast. This time, he saw a gap in the market and provided tangible solutions. Identifying strengths and weaknesses is not an easy feat. As someone who taught for a living, he was accustomed to encouraging others to learn. But to further his own success, he had to be both the teacher and the student. And as a result, momentum would build.
0: Oh. <sighs> I think a week before Christmas I wake up and my phone is kind of blowing up with tweets and people saying congratulations to me and people I never knew like Alex Bloomberg from startup and like why is Alex Bloomberg tweeting at me I don't know Alex like he's a big shot I don't know Alex I'm a nobody um and uh, we realized we won best of iTunes The funny thing is, is that when we launched the hundred dollar MBA show, Nicole said we're going to win best of iTunes. She was inspired by John Lee Dumas. John Lee Dumas is a John Lee Dumas and Kate Kate Erickson, who run Entrepreneurs on Fire, are friends of ours, and they won it the year before, two thousand thirteen. So John John has been an inspiration to us for a very long time, and he's and and we would always hear John talk about winning best of iTunes in his talks and events and things like that, and. And Nicole was like, "We're gonna win it. We're gonna we're gonna win in 2014. Don't worry." Like, and I was like, "Okay, whatever." Like, I I I always had like more of a realistic pessimistic view, but then we won Best of iTunes. She called it. From that moment, we got so much momentum, and um, I think by February we were doing like forty thousand downloads an episode. And uh, we also won another award from iTunes, the Work Smarter Podcast. And I reached out to Apple and I said, hey guys, you know, this is awesome that I'm winning these awards, but I would love to know, like, how and why. And it was very simple. They were just like, uh, you contributed to the genre in a different and new way. That was great, and the download was great, and winning the awards are great, but I think the best thing that really struck home to me that this was working was uh, the reviews we would get for the show. You know, we'd get like, you know, 10, 15 reviews uh, almost every single day. And every single one of them, like, The 101 Bay Show has helped me launch my business. It helped me get through a tough time on my business. I was like, wow, this is really helping people. This is really doing what it's supposed to do. I appreciate the success, but sometimes I realize that, you know, you have to understand that you're you're never going to have sustainable success unless you're constantly trying to improve and you're consistent. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, how are you able to grow the podcast? How are you able to have the, be so successful six years in? And it's a very simple answer. you know, my buddy Jason Zook uh, says it best, he has a blog post called uh, Showing Up. Most people fail because they don't show up. They don't actually just do what they're supposed to do. And I've always been good at that. So I've always been like saying yes to things and doing things and showing up to things.
1: Omar was never complacent. And I think that's one of the reasons that his podcast became so successful. You can hear it in his voice, that skepticism towards his own success. He won best of iTunes and still doubted himself. He was still hesitant to accept that success. But ultimately, I think that skepticism breeds success. Instead of basking in his victories, Omar explored avenues to improve, be it finding new methods of teaching or changing the way he scripts his podcasts. And Omar plans to expand the scope of teaching beyond the walls of the traditional classroom.
0: In April 2014, I launched a product called the DIY Webinar Guide. I created the DIY webinar I got to Nicole, we created videos. It was a guide. It had a like companion workbook and all that kind of stuff. And we launched this thing in April. We worked about three months on it. We're really excited and pumped. This is going to be amazing. We sent it out to our email list. We promoted it on social media, all that kind of stuff. We got two sales from the launch. And it was a huge gut check. Like, oh, failed again, right? In that moment, you do, like, you know, a post-mortem. You're like, okay, so what happened here? Why did we fail? What's going on? And uh, there's a line in a book, um, Ben Horowitz's book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he says, sometimes you have to create a bad product to create a great one. To realize what people actually need. And what I realized is that people don't actually want to do the work. They don't actually want to put together all the moving pieces. It's too overwhelming. It's too time-consuming. They actually want a turnkey solution. They want something that's easy to use. And when that flopped, I realized, okay, maybe the people want a tool. And at the same time, when I was running my webinars, uh, the attendees were like, hey, what are you using for this webinar? And I was just like, oh, it's just something I slapped together to make my life easier. And they're like, oh, can we buy it? We said, hey, you're gonna get this about four or five months, you're gonna have beta access. We opened up 150 spots, and those spots sold out in 48 hours.
1: And so, I guess, where is it now? Like, what and what are you most excited for uh, in the future?
0: So, Webinar Ninja has really evolved through the years. Um, I think the best thing I did in Webinar Ninja is I hired uh, some really smart, talented people—people people that are much better at what I what I can never do. Like, basically, uh, engineers, developers, managers. Um, we now have a team of twenty-eight now, twenty-eight people around the world. Um, working on Webinar Ninja, helping our customers um, and uh, we are uh, about to launch our next version which is Webinar Ninja 6 which is a whole bunch of updates. The gift of Webinar Ninja for me is it forced me to become a better entrepreneur. Um, building something like a software company, you can't do this alone. You got to hire great people, you got to be a great leader and as the business grew you know we have you know over 15,000 users we have a million people have attended a webinar on webinar ninja it's been a huge kind of growth
1: omar realized that entrepreneurship wasn't a one man show in the past he was self-sufficient. He wrote his own lesson plans. He recorded his own podcast. But with Webinar Ninja, he had to rely on others, something he wasn't entirely accustomed to. I've been told that entrepreneurship can often feel lonely, and I've certainly felt that at points, but it doesn't have to be. And I think that's what Omar realized here. Being the hero of the story can hold great appeal, but sometimes glory takes a backseat to providing the best product for customers. And Webinar Ninja is changing the way people teach, something that Omar excels at doing. So now let's hear some sage advice from Omar himself.
0: In the last four years, the last four years I've been reading 50 books every year. At least 50 books and a lot of those are biographies and what I love about biographies is that it shows you what it takes to be successful you know for example if you read um, Phil Knight's uh, or memoir shoe dog you know it, it, he's basically eating glass for 20 years like his life is horrible like his business is on the on the brink of, of failure and bankruptcy every second of the way the bigger your business the bigger the success the bigger the reward the more the more, more challenging it's going to be. The more problems you're going to have to solve, um, and a lot of people shy away from that. They're like, "Oh, you know, like I don't want to deal with that kind of stress." You could see it as stress, and you could see it as a challenge. You could see as like, "Hey, I'm in the problem-solving business as an entrepreneur, and I, I solve problems for my customers, but I also solve problems for my own business. I need to make sure that you're evolving." And one of the things biographies taught me is that you have to change who you are to get where you want to go. If I wanna be whatever version of myself in 10 years or in five years or in three years, I gotta do it for different things. And that means I gotta change. I can't be content with who I am, which is hard because it means that you're not good right now. You're not good enough to get to where you wanna go. You're good enough for where you are right now. Like your actions right now, what you're doing I'm doing every day is getting me the results I'm getting right now. But if I'm if I want different results or better results, I gotta make different actions or different decisions and that's hard. Super hard because you have to change change is very hard and and it's humbling experience and that's what i really learned the most about webinar ninjas it it really humbled me to realize i don't have all the answers i gotta get better and uh it's healthy to be surrounded with people that are where you want to be because you realize okay what they do every day is different from what i do i gotta change things up
1: Change. Some fear it and rail against it, and others love it and fight for it. And in addressing change, I want to tie back to that idea of skepticism that I mentioned earlier. Usually, we are only skeptical of our methods when things aren't quite going to plan. When we fail, we say to ourselves, okay, what didn't work, and how can we fix it? But I think what has made Omar successful is the skepticism is applied consistently and constantly no matter the outcome. In both success and failure, he asks, how can we do better? How can we exceed even our own expectations? Even after he won the Best of iTunes award for his $100 MBA podcast, he doubted his own success. So to this, I say, mirror Omar's skepticism. Stay skeptical. Because something that works now might not work later and definitely won't work forever. So you might as well build change into your process, iterate, and always ask yourself, how can I do better? See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our editing lead is Adrian Tapia, with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli
1: Lauren, Matt Fernandez,
0: Amir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock with support from Avneesh Sengupta, Prerika Chawla, Mitchell Lin, Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lin with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Le, Alice Yao, Ankita Nambiar, and Jamil Swayce. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu with support from Phoebe Sajor, <laughs> Tiffany Dang, Rick Liu. Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Ningmu Hu, and
1: James Barton. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at FindingFounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.